0: Hey, all It's Jesse, the host of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Maybe you have heard of me. A quick announcement. We're really excited to share it with you. We're going to be doing a very special live episode of Bullseye. It's going to be Friday, February 15th at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon. What are you going to see if you go... To Portland, Oregon, to see this show, you will see me live on stage talking with folks like Corin Tucker from Slater-Kinney, director Lance Bangs, writer Bill Oakley, Simpsons legend. Uh, We will also have live music from Roseblood and live comedy from Katie Wen. It's going to be a blast and a half. It's also part of a big podcast festival called Listen Up Portland. Tons of other great podcasts are playing at it, too. Our pals, the Doughboys, among others. So, again, that's Friday, February 15th at Revolution Hall in Portland, Oregon, 7 p.m. Tickets are on sale now. Get them at ListenUpPortland.com. And thanks.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
0: I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. I'm going to share one of my favorite recent bullseye interviews with you. It's with Elvis Costello. You know Elvis Costello, right? Anyway, this was recorded in 2015. He just finished a memoir called Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. You'll hear me talk about it more in a second. And I will say now, Elvis Costello is a genuine delight. Let's play another song from him before we kick off the interview. This one's from his newest record, Look Now. It's called Underline. Underline. David Lee Roth once said that music critics like Elvis Costello because he looks uh, like them. Ah, not that again. <laughs> but it might be more that he... Th- it's a good quote. I mean, it, that is a... Is it? I don't that's know. That's a solid piece of business. I don't know if it's true, but it's fun to I say. Don't know. You
1: tell me. I'm I'm not a writer. I'm a, I'm a
0: lover, not a fighter. <laughs> David Lee Roth once said that music critics like what Elvis Costello say? because he looks like them. But is the next part of this... Yes, it might be more because he thinks like them or makes music the way they might like to.
1: Have you seen David recently?
0: No. He looks just like a, he
1: looks just like a, a wizened old writer to me. <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I'm only teasing you. I know. I've heard that one a few times
0: through his career. <laughs> through his career, he's taken his favorite. Po- I'm going to power through this, Elvis. Yeah, I know you are. I
1: can sense I'm not going to deflect you.
0: No, not at all. I'm a professional pseudo journalist. <laughs> through his career I'm proud to hear it <laughs> he's taken his favorite pop sounds the, the ones he grew up with the ones he learned about as a young man the ones he's come to know in middle age and he's pushed them through his own vessel he writes eloquently about this web of influence in it, his sorry memoir. can i stop
1: you a sec can i stop yes. you for a second yes are we talking about david on me because this this reference to pushing things through my vessel it frankly <laughs> sounds quite rude to me I I don't know whether we should be saying this on NPR. I there's, think we may get letters.
0: There's some things that are legal to say on the radio, and some things that aren't. Uh, I think I'm allowed to speak metaphorically, um, uh, but okay. if you make it vulgar, we might have to bleep this whole exchange.
1: I, I, I'm almost certain they're going to have to do that. I see them hovering over that big red button there in the if, in the control room.
0: If you're so, and that's keen, not a rude
1: reference. I, I promise you, that wasn't <laughs> intent—a double entendre. <laughs>
0: uh costello writes eloquently about this web of influence in his new memoir unfaithful music and disappearing ink the way that and by the way you've ruined the entire tone of this introduction this was a really like thoughtful introduction that i worked very hard on and now it's just a series of jokes about private parts
1: Well, that's what you know by now from reading this book, that that is really my entire aim, (laughs) has been this. I think, no, I appreciate what you're saying. I, Of course, the David Lee Roth, uh, we've managed to mention David's name more often than mine. It's amazing. He's getting a lot of free publicity. Maybe he's got a book out as well. Um, I appreciate what you're saying. I'm I'm teasing you. Uh, But uh, you're quite right. This book is uh, trying to link up. I wasn't as you can tell from reading even a few pages, it doesn't begin, I was born, and then I did this, and then I did that, and the laughter and the tears, and my drug hell, and then my conversion to some strange philosophy, and you know, um, it, I tried to connect up emotionally the things that came to me, the fact that I, I happened to be born into a family for whom music was both vocation and occupation, both my parents my grandfather before my father as well, a life of travel that leads you on adventures and in some cases misadventures, hence the title Unfaithful Music. Memory being somewhat elusive um, or very vivid and then elusive. Unfortunately, both my father and grandmother, afflicted by dementia in in their later years, made me fearful that I would at some point in the future not be able to gather... all of these experiences that I've been lucky to have and put them on a page so they could be read by, just say, take two people, my two eight-year-old boys. I mean, other people want to read it too, that's great. But in some senses, I, I was thinking about there's some time in the future where I'll wish that I wrote this down because it may not all join up in quite the same way. That's really what I was trying to say.
0: I think, I mean, had had I gotten to the end of the very beautiful introduction that I wrote. It was um, exquisite, by the way. Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I enjoyed your book very much as well. Um, you. you know, one of the musicians that you return to in this book again and again is your dad. Um, and it's how, you know, it's how you start the book. And it's, you know, it's a relationship that is really central to the book. Um, and I wonder like when you were a child before your dad stopped living with you, what did you think about his music?
1: Well, I don't think you think a lot of things when you're that age, you know, I, I'm like form opinions as comparative, like, is it this or is it that, or is it better than this or better than that? I was very... I mean, I, my mother tells me I went looking round the back of the television for my dad when I was really a little more than an infant, you know, because I saw him on an early TV show. I, I I saw him, as I describe in the first chapter, from the balcony of a dance hall that was nearly deserted. It's hard to imagine a dance hall opening in a Saturday afternoon for 30 patrons and having a full dance band come out and play tunes for however long they played, you know. Uh, but they did in those days. and <clears throat> So that was unusual. I would go in the morning uh, when I was off school on holiday and go to radio broadcast theatres in the centre of London and watch musicians who, to my mind, were old men, but of course were men that were 20 years younger than I am now, reading the racing results and smoking cigarettes and waiting for the downbeat. And then a group of young men come in, carrying their amplifiers and guitars, and that would be the beat group. In one case I described the Hollies, uh, including Graham Nash, coming in from having driven overnight from the north of England so they could sing two songs on a guest slot on, the ra- on a lunch- lunchtime radio show. These are sort of... It's a pop world of music, and pop music doesn't really exist anymore. And this is within my lifetime. Admittedly, as old as I am, it, it's a surprise to me that things are quite so different. And, of course, those images really stayed in my mind. And the transference from the mundane to the magical in the moment of performance was startling to me as a child, but I didn't, com- I didn't have anything to compare it to. It was just what my father did for a living. Other dads came home, and my dad went to work,
0: you know. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to Bullseye. My guest, Elvis Costello, is, of course, a rock and roll legend. He also wrote the 2015 memoir Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Ink. I'm going to play a song with your father singing from the mid-1960s. Um, it's called Stop Your Playing Around. <laughs> Wow, How would you find that? <laughs> you should be in my arms, loving me, instead of that. You were always playing round, baby, baby, baby. When you say, Yes, I will, I'll be gone at my bill. So I say, Stop your playing
1: around, stop your playing, stop that thing around. Stop An atypical performance by, by Ross. I have you should. I should tell you that that was um, the B-side of a one or two... I guess you would call them Scar. You can ba- sort of vaguely recognize that as Scar. You've got to understand when Blue Beat, as it was called in in the early 60s, came in from Jamaica, it was another dance craze, just like the Twist and the Madison before it. And the Jealous Orchestra that my dad played with were a dance band, so the band leader you know, would say to the arranger, can we adapt these songs for our lineup, which was that of a typical dance band of the 1940s and 50s, you know, with saxophones and trumpets and trombones. He gave my dad the task of writing a few songs in this new style. And and hence, there's kind of almost like a, a West Indian inflection in his voice there, just the same way as people... We learned all our singing from American records, and then latterly, you know, I guess people heard music from all over the world and just copied it. And that was the music. The, the different thing between England and America, is, I think, although there are many people from the Caribbean in America, they all came at once, sort of as it were, into the into the culture and really transformed it with bringing music, calypso and and you know ska and then later reggae. We have that really as our second line of music, you know, to pop popular music. If you people of my age anyway, that's that was what we danced to at parties and in the early sixties. It's strange to think my dad got to make a record like that, you know, because it was it was it was actually trying to keep up with a new trend.
0: I mean, I'm really just imagining what it must have been like for your dad, who was, you know, by that point a, a grown adult who'd had a a healthy career and was singing in a band that was, you know, like a like the Glenn Miller composed like the Glenn Miller band or something like exactly.
1: that. Exactly, their theme song was actually in the mood. I mean, th- they borrowed the theme song from Glenn Miller. They played a lot of the Miller repertoire. One of my favorite recordings of my dad is actually uh, I Know Why and So Do You and At Last, which were recorded for a-, a tribute to Glenn Miller album that was made in the early 60s. Did
0: he go, like, I'm literally imagining it, and I'm wondering, like, was someone in the band going dum-da-da-dum-da-da-dum, and did he go like, ha!
1: I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. I know it doesn't seem very likely, but he, you know... They had a sense of humor about these things, and I suppose they weren't always respectful about the numbers, but they also had the groups. They had the young groups of the day on as guests, so the show was attractive to younger listeners because if only they were tuning in to hear their pop favorites, and they would hear these renditions alongside the original groups, and that even sounds strange, I know, but that's how I came to see the Hollies. I got When I first met Graham Nash in 1979, we were introduced backstage at a gig in Manchester and I said, we've met before, but you won't recognize me because I had short trousers on, you know, and and I had met him at 10 uh, with my dad. And, you know, my dad was very kind. I, I suppose, as you say, he was a grown-up. you know, he wasn't a kid, uh, but he liked a lot of the music that he was asked to sing. And a lot of the lads in those groups, they're either from Liverpool or from Manchester. They were Northern lads. And I suppose he saw some parallel to the journey he'd taken going down to London in the early fifties to make his name in music. And there was some sort of sympathy that might not have been there, otherwise. And he used to take my autograph book to the broadcast and come home with signatures. That and I have printed them. You know, in the there's an electric book uh, of this. You know, one of those e-books. And I added a, a gallery of pictures to as an appendix to that that edition, with you know these th- these dedications. And they're very they're poignant to read them now because these some of them are people like Tom Jones, you know, that are. That are well known to this day, others, Freddie Garrity of Freddie and the Dreamers, who not such a household name,
0: you know. Was your father a better singer than you are?
1: Technically, yes. I mean the record you played didn't really show his voice to best effect, but if you heard him singing uh, at last you would definitely say that.
0: Were you sort of aware of that when you were a kid? I mean, because I was, I was kid, never like gonna teenager. be I
1: was never gonna be a musician when I was a kid. I was I was I, I didn't I wanted to be a coal man. You know what I mean? A coal man, a man that delivers coal. Not a miner. I wanted to be a coal man.
0: Why did you want to be a coal man? Because
1: I like getting dirty and I like the smell of it. Then then the nuns tried to make me into a priest. And that didn't work out. So I was stuck with being in rock and roll.
0: You write in the book that you think that people um, took you as angry just because of the gap in your front teeth.
1: Well, it's certainly true. I've had lots of altercations with people of authority. <laughs> Teachers, border guards, policemen. Because if you can hear it now, I can hear it on the microphone, the, the, the air that's expelled between the gap in somebody's teeth who's born like I was and didn't get their teeth straightened. It causes this sort of thing. It could, be, it could be a lisp which could make you sound very gentle or if you express things emphatically, it makes you sound as if it's slightly more exaggerated then perhaps you sometimes mean, and I also have a loud voice, which means that people jump out of their skin, you know. And uh, I'm obviously making a joke. I mean, hey, look at Jane Birkin. You know, she was just the most beguiling person when you saw pictures of her as a young woman, and even today she's extraordinary, and she has that. Ray Davis has it. Jerry Lewis has it. What links us all together is our teeth.
0: One of the people that you met when you were still very young, relatively new to the music industry, was Johnny Cash, right?
1: Yeah, well, that was a complete coincidence, you know. I, mean, no, I would have no way to have met him in the circum, you know, could have never imagined. I mean, Nick Lowe was the first person who was in a group who I could have any, I could ask questions of. I'd been around musicians since I was a child, but I had no questions to ask my my dad's colleagues. I didn't ask my dad a lot of questions about music. He also didn't impose on me the learning of any music theory, uh, although his father had been a classically trained or military trained musician. Uh, so I had questions for Nick Lowe. They were about songwriting. I can't even remember what they were now, you know. And, of course, then he became my producer when, when I was first making records. And then a couple of years into that, he married June Carter's daughter, Carleen. And next thing, the in-laws came for Christmas, and it, the in-laws were Johnny Cash and June Carter. You know, it was like... And we were invited round for a recording session on the day after Christmas. I mean, it sounds absolutely fantastic, but it really happened, you know. And of course, it was to be in a confined space of a of a you know domestic setting in England with Johnny Cash was a bit unusual, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not exactly where you imagine. He was so, he was so imagine...
1: unbelievably like himself. It was you know, it was like you don't really don't imagine to...
0: Johnny Cash like walking through a Victorian Christmas card, you know.
1: Well, it was yeah, a little bit like that, you know, Christmas time, and and it's London. I mean, you know, obviously the American idea of it is lots of urchins, you know, bare feet, <laughs> and you know, we're all huddling together around a around a brazier.
0: You were but, a chimney you know, sweep at the time, right? I
1: was. Uh, it was in my years. It was a chimney sweep, and I said, oh, "God bless you, Mister Cash. May I have a penny
0: to Thanks. pay for
1: a roast goose?" And it wasn't, you know, it's like Dick Van Dyke, you know, Mary Poppins, uh, but uh, no, I. You know, we went to the door and he was great. He just introduced himself the way he always did. You know, hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I couldn't believe he was saying it to me. And then, you know, there was a little... I, there was certainly some drinking going on with... Uh, I described in the book Johnny relating this night later on in a tribute to George Jones because the song we recorded was a song that George had written, a rare composition. And uh, Johnny, Johnny reciting it was perhaps the best thing of all because, you know, he sort of said... Well, I was I was with Elvis Costello and and Nick Law and they were drinking a little bit and you know, and apparently we toasted to how great George was. And I mean this was later in the evening, perhaps after we had recorded this duet, which was vocally
0: fairly ill advised on my part, I have to say. You know, it was uh, to try and more with Elvis Costello after the break. In just a minute he'll tell me who knows him by his birth name, Declan McManus. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Withings, creator of the Wi-Fi Smart Scale. Meet your goals with a smart scale that delivers weight, BMI, and body composition, even a local weather report. See why Tom's Guide named Withings Body Plus the best overall smart scale of 2018. Visit withings.com NPR for 30% off any body composition scale. Withings, giving people the tools they need to improve their lives. Hey, thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Peter Sagel. Come try the only
1: show that treats the news the way it deserves to be treated, roughly, with lots of tasteless comments. That's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the NPR One app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Dead Pilot Society brings you exclusive readings of comedy pilots that were never made, featuring actors like Patton Oswalt. So the vampire from the future sleeps in the dude's studio during the day, and they hunt monsters at night. It's Blade meets the Odd Couple. <laughs> Adam Scott and Jane Levy. Come on, Corey. She's too serious, too business-y. She doesn't know the hokey pokey. Well, she'll learn what it's all about. <laughs> Busy Phillips and Dave Keckner.: Baby, this is family.
1: My Uncle Tell, who showed his wiener to Cinderella at Disneyland, is family. Do you want him staying with
0: us? He did stay with us for three months. And he was a delight. <laughs> a new pilot every month, only on Dead Pilot Society, for maximum fun. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the legendary singer and songwriter Elvis Costello. He's got a new album out called Look Now. Here's another song from it. This one's called Burnt Sugar Is So Bitter.
1: To you voices, you I want to play, play a, play
0: a play. song that you wrote for one of my favorite singers of all time, um, Solomon Burke, who recorded an album in the early 2000s it, it was sort of a you know sort of a comeback album for him, although he had done very well on the road for decades and decades mm. um, and it 's called the judgment let 's take a listen When you're writing a song for somebody who, whose style, whose instrument is as distinctive as somebody like Solomon Burke or Johnny Cash, are you thinking of it the way, say, a, a comedy writer might think about, you know, writing a joke for uh, for David Letterman or, or Roseanne Barr, uh, mm-hmm. thinking about trying to capture something about their particular voice?
1: It's sort of different with with music, I would think. Um, <clears throat> at least for me, it, it is. I had dreams of people singing songs that came true. Uh, I had a dream of Dusty Springfield singing my song. I had a dream of of Chet Baker singing my song. I had a dream of Roy Orbison. I had a dream of Johnny Cash. Even though I knew John a little bit, you know, I I, I still didn't sort of really think he would pick up my song. Uh, not the first time, anyway. Uh, with with Solomon, it was a little bit different because I'd had the experience of trying to write for some people and not got the measure of them right. I I I was trying to put too much into a song or didn't quite get the, the measurement right. And even with this one, there were a couple of tricks to this song musically that interrupted Solomon's flow. And Joe Henry, who produced this record, who's a friend of mine who also produced the Rhythm Reverse and, and worked with Alain Toussaint, uh, he, he had me stand in the booth with Solomon because uh, I was at the recording session and Solomon you know was a, he, he was a, such a big personality but in, in many ways he was like there was something really wonderful about the way he, he you know invited you in and he told me to sing it for him because there was this timing of this one line he he, he just kept every time he'd get ro- rolling with it he'd come in the wrong place and you know I've got to learn this so you sing it can you imagine that having to stand in front of Solomon Burke and sing the song you know you could, I could sort of sing it in my head, you know, and um, and and then I did, and then of course then he learnt it, and he, he could hear what it was. Once he once he could watch me do it, he could he got what the rhythm of it was, and then he sang it great, you know. And I mean, Nick Lowell will tell the same s- story about staying up all night to imagine sing writing the beast in me for Johnny Cash, and and then sort of the next day, you know, June. Having heard about it, getting Nick to play it to Johnny, and so when it came out, of course, it came out in this feeble little voice that wasn't like this big voice. It was like the beast in me, you know. It was like because the dream we have of the singer is often, you know, we can't we can't animate like that, you know.
0: I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. My guest is the musician and now memoirist Elvis Costello. Here's a little bit of Allison from 1977's "My Aim Is True."
1: I don't know if you are loving somebody I only know it isn't mine Allison I know this world is killing
0: Who in your life knows you by your birth name, Declan McManus? My mother,
1: a handful of friends, a few people that knew me, you know, before I ever got into
0: this world, you know, of, work, of music and adopted other names, you know. When you adopted the name, it was a name that was given to you by your manager, right? The second name was as a family name. Costello is, more correctly
1: said, Costello. It's an Irish name. It's my great-grandmother... Elizabeth Costello. I'd adopted that because it was easier to say and shorter to write down. Um, and I, I'd used my initials for a while, DP, because my dad used to address me that way, which is an Irish convention too. Um, and then they handed me that, and it was like a dare. And, you know, my father had recorded under other aliases in the 1960s. He'd recorded cover records for for cash money, you know, uh, earlier in the morning sessions that were put out on cheap cover records where you get four titles from the hit parade on a on an EP on an extended play vinyl record. And he went on sometimes he'd be three or four aliases on one release. You know, he'd be uh, Hal Prince and the Layabouts, or the Foresters singing Blowing in the Wind, or Frank Bacon and the Bacon Ears. So you can appreciate that being Elvis Costello really was just like second nature
0: to me. When you go into like uh, uh, like a Starbucks or whatever do you tell them your name is Elvis or Declan?
1: I, I try to avoid doing that anyway. I, mean, <laughs> um, I usually don't tell them anything.
0: Was there ever a point where it stopped feeling strange to be addressed by a, a made-up name?
1: Well, nobody ever did call me that, by that name anyway. Most, of, Oddly enough, the thing of being called by my initials, which I know from childhood... It's sort of the way everybody's always addressed me in my camp, you know, as it were, in my, my gang, whether it was a, the band or the management, it was always .EC, so and that was easier. you know it's shorter. And uh, I don't ever have, recall that many people ever calling me by Elvis. You know?
0: Well, I'm really grateful to you for taking the time to be on bullseye. Thank you so much for. Thank you. With Thank
1: you very much, your most thoughtful questions. Thank you.
0: Elvis Costello from 2015. His memoir Unfaithful Music and Disappearing Inc. is a great read. It's available to purchase in bookstores and online. His latest album is called Look Now. Here's one more song off of it. It's called He's Given Me Things. He's given me
1: things You never would have And if you did You'd want them back For giving me things I didn't know
0: That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where apparently, I just found this out, that my producer Kevin is leading a staff trip to Shakey's tomorrow. Apparently he used to work at Shakey's and he isn't keeping that secret like he should be. Uh, It says here, please don't fire him. Yeah, I mean, we'll give it some thought. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is slash was Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien, production fellow at MaximumFun.org, Shayna Deloria. Our interstitial music comes from Dan Wally. He's also known as DJW. Thanks, as always, to Dan. You can find uh, an album he made of interstitial music from Bullseye on Bandcamp. Our theme song is by The Go Team. Our thanks to them for letting us use it and to their label, Memphis Industries. They're the best, great band, great folks. And did you know that we have been making this show for, like, more than 15 years? So there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of episodes. You can listen to all of them on our website at MaximumFun.org. Even, like, the interview I did with Henry Rollins on the phone when I was 23 that then uh, Ira Glass sent me a nice email about. Anyway, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, and I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.